You're listening to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, bonus edition, with your host, Johanna Ruddy. Our podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each bonus episode features more in-depth discussions with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impact on patients' quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this episode is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. We're going to get started, so thank you everybody for attending tonight. My name is Jeffrey Roberts, and I'm the co-founder of Tuesday Night IBS and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group and World IBS Day. And I'm thrilled to welcome all of you tonight to our monthly webinar series. Tonight, we are very honored to be joined by some fantastic experts, Dr. William Che and Kate Scarlato, who are speaking about small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, SIBO, separating facts from fiction. Uh, Tonight's program is sponsored by an educational grant from Diet Versus Disease, and we'd like to thank them for their support. You'll hear from Rachel Manthe and Taylor Hanna from Diet Versus Disease after our presentations. Before we begin tonight, I do want to take the opportunity to remind you about next month on August 30th at 7 p.m., Kate Scarlata will be hosting a food demo. Hold on one second. Well, there we go. Uh, a food demo with Chef Sarah sponsored by Modify Health. Uh, Then on September 21st at 7 p.m., we'll be hosting a webinar about how to communicate with patients about constipation, and that's sponsored by Ardelix. So please go to our website and register for those. It's free on August the 30th, and then on September uh, 21st, you can register for all those programs at TuesdayNightIBS.com. You'll be able to watch this webinar at a later date. Everyone registered for this webinar will receive an email with a link to the recording, In addition, all our previous webinars are available on the Tuesday Night IBS website. So that's our housekeeping for tonight. We invite you and encourage questions. Please put those in the Q&A box, and we'll have time to address all of those in a panel discussion at the end of the program. So let's go ahead and introduce our faculty for tonight. Uh, We have Dr. William Che. He's the Pollard Professor of GI and Professor of Nutrition Sciences and Internal Medicine at Michigan Medicine and in 2022 became the chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Michigan. And we're so thrilled to welcome him tonight. Our friend Kate Scarlata needs no real introduction. She is a registered dietitian clinician and a researcher in digestive health and nutrition. She is also a best-selling author and founder of For, of For a Digestive Peace of Mind. And I'm so thrilled to welcome our faculty. And I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Dr. Che now to begin. Thanks, Jeff. Let me see if I can get this to work. There we go. All right, so we're going to be talking about uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth tonight, certainly a controversial and a topic that's of incredible interest, uh, as evidenced by all of you that are taking time out of your busy schedules this evening to join us. So realize that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth Um, refers to a condition in which there is um, an excess of bacteria in the small intestine. Now, right now, SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, is defined by an abnormal quantity of bacteria in the small intestine. In fact, 
Uh, the current definition is that when you aspirate or collect fluid from the first portion of the small intestine, the duodenum, and, and are able to grow greater than 10 to, to the third colony forming units per milliliter of bacteria, that defines SIBO. But increasingly, I'll tell you, from, from my own perspective, and I think of many experts' perspectives, we're increasingly starting to think that what is there, the types of bacteria and what they're doing, the metabolic impact of those bacteria are as important as the quantity of bacteria. So in the coming years, it may very well be necessary for us to expand the way that we're currently defining uh, SIBO. Now, SIBO is important because it leads to a wide variety of different clinical consequences. In some patients, it's entirely asymptomatic, doesn't cause any symptoms or problems. In other patients, it can cause significant symptoms, symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence, or diarrhea. And in some people, it can actually even lead to malabsorption. That is, symptoms that are so severe and just so much disruption in the small intestine that the normal small intestine is unable to absorb nutrients from food that you eat. There are a range of different factors which protect against the development of bacterial overgrowth. This really is an abnormal state. Uh, so the production of acid in your stomach helps to decontaminate your food. Remember that ancient man was an omnivore that oftentimes ate unclean foods. Uh, it, it was a, um, a scavenger. And so acid was one of the main defenses that prevented people from getting food poisoning. Pancreatic and or pancreatic and biliary secretions also help to clean bacteria, viruses, and other organisms from the food that we eat. Remember that residing within the wall of your gastrointestinal tract is the richest portion of the body's immune system. So lots of antibodies and other factors that help to uh, eliminate bacteria and other um, contaminants that might otherwise invade the wall of the small intestine. Um, also, remember that there's so-called motility or contractile activity that rhythmically moves through the gastrointestinal tract and helps to sweep debris and bacteria from the small intestine. That's what keeps the small intestine relatively free of uh, lots of bacteria. And then finally, the ileocecal valve, which is a muscular ring that separates the last part of the small intestine, the ileum, from the first part of the large intestine or the cecum. Um, now, there's lots and lots and lots of bacteria, literally trillions of bacteria within the colon. That is obviously quite a bit different than the small intestine, which has much lower concentrations of bacteria. So you can imagine that if you remove that ileocecal valve and allow stool to freely move back and forth between the cecum and small intestine, that would promote bacterial overgrowth. <clears throat> Now, on this slide, this is a summary from a recent review that was published in one of our major journals, Gastroenterology, that summarizes the range of different clinical entities that can occur in association with abnormalities of any of those factors that I just reviewed for you. 
So for example, abnormalities in small intestinal motility or contractile activity can lead to bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. So diabetic patients who experience injury to their autonomic nervous system um, will get abnormalities in motility that predisposes to the development of SIBO. Systemic sclerosis or scleroderma, almost universally these patients as their disease progresses, develop bacterial overgrowth. Intestinal pseudo-obstruction, where individuals have primary abnormalities and the ability of the small intestine to normally contract, um, similarly get bacterial overgrowth. Patients with neurological diseases like Parkinson's disease or ALS or spinal cord injury all get um, abnorm abnormalities in motility and get bacterial overgrowth. Anatomical abnormalities, such as which can be naturally occurring, like small bowel diverticulosis, outpouchings in the small intestine that can harbor bacteria, or surgically induced. So um, patients that get uh, surgery to the small intestine or even outside of the small intestine in the abdomen that can lead to the development of scarring or adhesions that can impede normal motility or cause partial obstruction are more likely to get bacterial overgrowth. Individuals that have reduced acid secretion in the stomach, which can either be from medications like proton pump inhibitors or from previous surgery, patients that have had previous gastrectomy or partial gastrectomy. Immune deficiency conditions, as well as a variety of other disorders are all associated with a greater likelihood of developing SIBO. Moving into diagnosis, there are a range of different tests, which we'll briefly review just to give you some familiarity with how your doctor uh, might diagnose SIBO. Uh, first, starting with what's held up to be the gold standard, and that, that is endoscopy with aspiration of fluid from the small intestine for quantitative culture. Uh, now, the benefits of this particular technique is that it can be performed at the time of endoscopy. So a lot of patients who have upper GI or lower GI symptoms get endoscopy, and you can sample the fluid within the small intestine at the time of that procedure. It gives you a direct assessment for the presence of SIBO. So you culture the fluid and you can tell how many bacteria are actually in, how many colony forming units are in that, that sample of fluid that you collected from the small intestine. And it also potentially allows you to identify the types of bacteria. Um, and even in some cases, whether they're sensitive or resistant to certain antibiotics. But there are lots of problems with this technique. You can imagine that if you sample from one spot in the small intestine, and and the, and remember there are, there's a football field length of small intestine, right? Um, it's subject to what we call sampling there. In other words, it might be that you um, collect fluid from a place where there's not much bacteria, but in a different place there's lots of bacteria. Um, let me go back to that last slide for a second. It's it's invasive. It's costly. Uh, it's it's expensive and difficult to do. And for all those reasons, it's an imperfect gold standard. And for all those reasons, there's been a hunt for other less invasive, simpler tests to diagnose bacterial overgrowth. And the one that's most commonly used is breath testing. And the idea here is if you give a substrate, sugar, uh, that gets into the small intestine, if there are an abnormal number of bacteria in there, 
those bacteria will ferment the sugar, releasing gases, which are absorbed across the, the lining of the small intestine and eventually excreted or released in the breath where they can be measured. There are two main types of breath tests that are done in the United States. One is with glucose. The other one is with a synthetic disaccharide called lactulose. Each one has benefits and problems. Just to give you a quick idea here, lactulose, since, since it's a synthetic disaccharide, there are no enzymes in the small intestine that can break lactulose down to allow it to be absorbed by the human small intestine. For that reason, it gets all the way through the small intestine. So if you have abnormal amounts of bacteria anywhere in the small intestine, it's likely to get picked up by lactulose. But here's the problem with lactulose. There are lots and lots of bacteria in the colon, as I mentioned earlier. So when lactulose gets to the colon, it will be fermented by those bacteria in the colon, releasing the gases that can be measured in the breath. So um, it's hard to tell whether a positive test is from bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine or from the normal bacteria in the colon. Um, for glucose, glucose is very rapidly absorbed by the human small intestine. By the middle part of the small intestine, all of glucose, even a very large amount of glucose that you ingest orally, will be absorbed. So if you get an increase in breath hydrogen or methane or hydrogen sulfide in the breath after you consume glucose, it suggests that there's abnormal levels of fermentation somewhere in the upper part of the small intestine. Um, the problem is, if you have bacterial overgrowth in the lower part of the small intestine, you're possibly going to miss it with glucose. So um, these there are parameters by which we do these tests. I'm not going to go over this in any detail, uh, except to say that there, there was a recent document, which is in the references here, that was published by the, uh, by the American College of Gastroenterology, uh, or actually in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and it's, it was produced by a group of experts from the United States that gave guidance in terms of how to do these tests and what constituted an abnormal test. And so if you're interested in that, you can certainly refer to the slides or look up look up the, the, those results in the reference provided. So one of the big developments in the last few years has been the fact that measuring hydrogen alone in the breath when looking for SIBO is insufficient. And it's insufficient because um, one form of overgrowth that can occur is related to organisms which produce methane so-called intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Now, you'll notice that when I say intestinal methanogen overgrowth, I leave out the small intestinal methanogen overgrowth. And, and that's because methanogens can be present anywhere in the GI tract, so in the small intestine and or the colon. So when you get abnormal levels of methane in the breath, it's impossible to tell whether that's from the small intestine or colon. The other thing to realize about methane is it's not produced by bacteria. It's produced by organisms called archaea, which are not bacteria or eukaryotes. Uh, they're a different type of organism. Uh, the main one of which produces methane is called Methanobrevobacter smithii. 
Um, it turns out that when that this organism, which produces methane, if you infuse methane in the small intestine, it actually slows down that contractile activity or motility um, that I was referring to earlier and is associated with complaints of constipation. Now, there are a number of emerging tests in addition to the breath tests and quantitative culture for bacterial overgrowth. Some are highly uh, experimental, like orosecal centigraphy with simultaneous breath testing. So this combines having the patient ingest a radioactive isotope, which you can watch go through the intestine, um, uh, and also uh, uh, simultaneous breath testing to give you a better idea about uh, whether whether abnormalities are associated with bacterial overgrowth or what we call rapid transit, that is, uh, substances moving too quickly through the small intestine. This will never make it to clinical practice, so it's, it's probably not important within this context. Another recent development is the, the description of abnormal levels of hydrogen sulfide in some patients with bacterial overgrowth. We'll talk about that in a moment. And that leads into the, a very brief discussion that I'll give you on breath microtyping. That is looking at the type of breath pattern that's collected in time of breath testing to give an idea about what the, the, the organisms are that might be causing the overgrowth and, and, and hopefully sometime down the road, giving us some direction in terms of what, what the most appropriate treatment will be for an individual patient. We're not there yet, but there are people working on it. So there are different microtypes that seem to be associated with different clinical phenotypes. So constipation, diarrhea, for example, are the sort of broad categories that we think about um, patients with overgrowth. First um, thing to realize is that we mentioned that methane, abnormal levels of breath methane that are measured are, are more likely to be associated with complaints of constipation. So constipated patients are more likely to get uh, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Um, the patients that have abnormal levels of hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide appear to have SIBO, bacterial overgrowth, and in particular, are associated with the clinical phenotype of diarrhea. And it's related to, to this, um, what's going on in this slide. So there are bacteria that produce hydrogen when they ferment carbohydrates. Um, if there are methanogens, they will, they will scavenge that hydrogen and turn it into methane. And methane has those effects in the small intestine and colon to slow down motility and seems to be associated with a greater likelihood of constipation. Hydrogen sulfide is produced by or certain bacteria that scavenge that hydrogen um, and, and seems to be associated with a greater likelihood of, of symptoms associated with IBS and diarrhea, so abdominal pain, urgency, diarrhea. These are not perfect correlations, by the way. I can tell you from doing literally tens of thousands of breath tests uh, in our laboratory uh, over the course of many, many years. While there are associations, methane associated with, uh, with IBS and constipation, for example, uh, there are methane, there are a small number of methane patients that have diarrhea. Uh, so these are not perfect associations. Um, now to talk, talk about this more, more in terms of how it relates to breath analysis on, on hydrogen, on methane breath testing. 
Um, this gives you some idea again about the thresholds that define an abnormal breath test. Uh, an increase in hydrogen of greater than 20 parts per million from the baseline with, from baseline within 90 minutes defines the presence of an abnormal hydrogen breath test. This seems to be associated with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. On the other hand, intestinal methanogen overgrowth is associated with an abnormal level of methane defined as greater than 10 parts per million any time during the breath test. Certainly, if there's a rise greater than 10 compared to baseline, but most people are moving towards the metric of uh, greater than 10 anytime during the breath test suggests that there are methanogens uh, somewhere in the small intestine or colon. And then finally, the new kid on the block, hydrogen sulfide. Uh, right now, uh, we don't have very much data on this, but the Cedar Sinai group has set a threshold of greater than three parts per million for hydrogen sulfide as defining abnormal and appears to be associated with a diarrhea phenotype. So here's what the American College of Gastroenterology said about the diagnosis of bacterial overgrowth in a recent clinical practice guideline. First, we suggest the use of breath testing, glucose or lactulose, for the diagnosis of SIBO in patients with IBS, so or irritable bowel syndrome. We'll come back to that at the very end of the talk. Second, we suggest glucose or lactulose hydrogen breath tests for diagnosis of SIBO in symptomatic patients with suspected motility abnormalities. So all those conditions that I mentioned to you that are associated with motility abnormalities, patients that have these um, symptoms of abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea, constipation, we might consider breath testing. And then thirdly, we suggest testing for SIBO using glucose or lactulose hydrogen breath tests in symptomatic patients with abdominal pain, gas, bloating, and or diarrhea with previous luminal surgery, so previous intestinal surgery that could lead to narrowing or restrictions that could predispose to the development of bacterial overgrowth. Um, future directions, there are companies developing portable and at-home breath test kits. Uh, there is a focus on the metabolome and measuring different elements within exhaled breath or stool, like substances called volatile organic compounds, which are some of the metabolic byproducts of bacterial fermentation. And then finally, gas sensing capsules. Capsules that actually, as they're going through the intestine, will measure the concentrations of different gases. So just to give you a little bit more insight into some of these technologies, this is actually a, a handheld breath testing device that's commercially available that connects um, digitally to an app, a mobile application, uh, and gives provides a web-based dashboard, which can be reviewed by um, your, your medical provider. Um, some potential applications for this handheld portable breath testing device, the detection of bacterial overgrowth. Um, people are increasingly talking about possibly using this as a mechanism for identifying patients more likely to respond to dietary restriction or if you respond to dietary restriction and you're reintroducing different types of individual FODMAPs, for example, foods containing FODMAPs, um, you might be able to identify a, great, a greater likelihood of being sensitive to individual FODMAPs. And then finally, for 
patients with refractory constipation. I'm not going to go over the data on the slide except to say that this portable breath testing device in a recent study seems to perform in a similar manner to traditional laboratory-based breath testing. So uh, certainly promising preliminary results, but we need more information. Um, also, this gas-sensing capsule, I think, is a very interesting technology. As I said, the, the capsule actually contains different types of sensors which are able to detect and measure quantity different gases within the GI tract as it moves through the GI tract. Um, this is data from a recent study with the gas sensing capsule. It just gives you some insight into the fact that uh, with different substrates, glucose or inulin, remember that glucose is fully absorbed in the small intestine and very little of it gets to the colon. Uh, there's virtually no increase in breath hydrogen excretion after uh, an oral load of glucose. On the other hand, inulin, which we know is not absorbed by the human small intestine, um, uh, produces or leads to an increased production of hydrogen concentration in the colon, which can be measured by this capsule. Uh, also, it turns out that the capsule is sensitive enough to be able to give you a dose response in terms of the different gas productions as you increase the dose of substrate that the patient or that an individual ingests by mouth. Right now, the treatment of bacterial overgrowth, at least for most medical doctors like myself, focuses on courses of antibiotics, short courses of antibiotics. And you can see uh, this is a, 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 some recommendations that were provided uh, in a recent paper published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2020. It gives you an idea about the antibiotics that can be used. Now, it's really important to point out that with a few exceptions, there are not rigorous, large, um, uh, randomized controlled trials, which have evaluated different antibiotics for patients with bacterial overgrowth. For the most part, these are smaller observational studies. Um, so it's some data, but it's certainly not high quality data. Depicted on this slide are um, some recommendations from the American Gastrological Association for SIBO. So uh, the ACG put out some recommendations. The AGA put out some recommendations. The good news is they're pretty similar. For the most part, if you'll notice, if you look at this slide carefully, the antibiotics listed are pretty much the same antibiotics that were on the last slide. Uh, doses might be slightly different, but um, bottom line is that uh, the use of glyphaxamine is very attractive because it's a non-absorbable oral antibiotic with a relatively broad spectrum of activity against a wide range of bacteria but also commonly used antibiotics like um, amoxicillin, clavulonate, cipro, doxycycline, uh, et cetera. Now, it's really important to remember that antibiotics, uh, although they oftentimes will provide some relief, often, when patients respond, they oftentimes will recur over time. This is a study that was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology quite a few years ago now which nicely illustrates that when you treat a patient for documented bacterial overgrowth with a course of antibiotics, their breath test results um, largely revert to normal. But as you follow them over the course of three, six, nine months, you can see 
almost a linear increase in the likelihood of recurrence so that roughly half of the patients by nine months now had a recurrently positive breath test result. So treating bacterial overgrowth is oftentimes not forever. We'll finish up with the last two slides on IBS. Um, and this slide isn't exactly on IBS, but it's about patients with GI symptoms, 126 patients with GI symptoms versus 38 healthy volunteers. The small bowel microbiome, so the organisms that were living in the small intestine, differed in patients with GI symptoms versus healthy volunteers. In fact, 52% of these individuals had evidence of bacterial overgrowth by aspiration of fluid from the small intestine during endoscopy and quantitative culture. 29% of, uh, of patients versus 3% of healthy volunteers uh, had, had um, let's see what uh, small bowel dysbiosis. So actually had um, a, 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 a type of bacteria, bacterial growth uh, in, in the small intestine that was thought to be markedly abnormal and predisposing to development of these symptoms. Uh, metabolic pathways for the digestion of simple sugars differed between the patients with symptoms and healthy volunteers, which is interesting given the low FODMAP concept, which Kate will talk about in a moment. Um, also, how much fiber you ate also made a difference about how much bacteria and what types of bacteria lived in your, your small intestine. And diet changes led to measurable and almost immediate changes in the small bowel of the, or in, in small bowel and the colon. So diet is perhaps the most important influencer of what's living within our small intestine and colon. So why is the gut microbiome different in patients with symptoms? Why is it different in patients with irritable bowel syndrome? Well, diet may be different. And again, Kate's going to talk about that. The underlying disease may predispose to the development of SIBO um, or, or the alterations in the gut microbiome. Um, also, remember that stress can lead to changes in the gut microbiome. Sleep disturbance, which is common in patients with IBS, can lead to changes in the microbiome. IBS patients are typically on medications, not only for their gut symptoms, but oftentimes for other symptoms, migraine headaches, pelvic pain, um, a whole range of different types of pain-related symptoms. And then also supplements. How many of your IBS patients are taking supplements? At this point, um, I'm constantly amazed by how many different supplements um, my patients are taking when they come to see me? Um, I think for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over this and just go to concluding remarks and say that bacterial overgrowth or SIBO is currently defined by the quantity of bacteria in the small bowel. But what is there and what those bacteria are doing may be just as, or perhaps even more important than the quantity of bacteria that we can measure. Intestinal methanogen overgrowth is the consequence of methane production by an organism called Methanobrevobacter smithii and can be in the small bowel or colon and is associated with the phenotype of constipation. Diagnosis relies upon quantitative culture, breath testing, or um, if you don't have those things, giving a course of antibiotics and seeing whether a patient gets better. Breath microtyping 
may offer insights into the cause of overgrowth and guide treatment choices. We still definitely need more information on that latter part of that statement. Medical treatments continue to rely upon the use of short courses of antibiotics. High quality antibiotic treatment data is sparse. Benefits are transient and antibiotic resistance is a concern. And so with that, I'll stop and thank you very much for your attention. Okay. Sorry, just trying to work out those slides. Um, hello, everyone. Um, thanks for your attention. I'm going to be talking about diet considerations in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, so as you can imagine, there's lots of things online um, that you may find from Dr. Google about diet and um, SIBO. But truthfully, there is still not enough scientific evidence to support one specific type of diet for treatment. And as Dr. Che mentioned in his talk, we, we barely know about antibiotic therapy and, and really understanding you know, the specific microbes associated with some of these symptoms that some patients experience while others may not. So there's a lot of room for, for research in this area. Unfortunately, um, many diets are disseminated on websites online, and it can be really confusing and overwhelming for patients. Um, and some of those diets you may find with a little commentary from me, my personal opinion, I've been personally affected by SIBO after having an intestinal resection, including my ileal cecal valve and scar tissue. So I'm the poster child over here. I understand this personally and professionally. Um, and just be careful, there's a lot of pseudoscience out there. Um, so some of the diets out there include the SIBO-specific diet or biphasic diet. I'm sure many of you have heard of this. This is a combination of the specific carbohydrate diet and a low FODMAP diet together. And to just define very briefly for because of time limitations today, we could do a two-day workshop on SIBO. Um, the specific, carbo diet, uh, specific carbohydrate diet restricts carbohydrates that require digestive enzymes to degrade those carbohydrates. So sucrose, lactase, lactose, as well as starches. So it's a pretty restrictive diet on its own. And then when you couple it with low FODMAP in the SIBO-specific and biphasic diets, it becomes very restrictive and concerning to me um, from a nutritional standpoint and an escalation of food fear um, which we see a lot in, in this patient population. GAPS is another diet that you may see out there. There's absolutely no science. It's increased and it has a lot of unfounded food rules and encourages drinking copious amounts of bone broth, which sounds terrible to me. Um, but again, no science for SIBO. Low FODMAP diet is, is you know, highly evidence-based for irritable bowel syndrome and IBS and SIBO symptoms mimic each other. Um, so there may be some, some benefit to the low FODMAP diet, but again, not enough data specifically for SIBO. Um, and this diet is moderately restrictive, and I'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. And then there's the CEDARS, which should have an S-Sinai, Mark Pimentel's low fermentation diet. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. 
That has no data. It is the least restrictive um, and incorporates some some eating patterns and styles of eating related to um, encouraging the migrating motor complex, which Dr. Che mentioned about in a moment, and I will talk a little bit about that in a second. The fast track is another diet, and this has been studied primarily in GERD or uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's another very complicated diet based on what's called a fermentation potential of food. So the diet encourages foods that are absorbed readily in the small intestine and really excludes things that would, would have any kind of fermentation in the gut, again, lacking data. And then you know, a lot of people put a lot of onus on the elemental diet, but please bear in mind this data on the elemental diet helping decrease GI symptoms and normalizing breath tests in SIBO was one study. It was a short-term study where they measured the benefit of an elemental diet, which basically is a liquid diet with pre-digested ingredients, amino acids, small chain carbohydrates, short um, small chain um, fats that can be absorbed easily in the gut. Um, but again, this, first of all, it's a very distasteful product to drink and patients that have done it, I've seen them after the fact, it's really challenging for them. It doesn't guarantee long-term eradication of bacteria. And the data again is in this one short-term study that measured benefit of this diet in two weeks after. And if you remember Dr. Che's graph there, it was about, I think, nine months where, where patients were starting to really, you know, uh, relapse. But some of them, you know, incrementally, but by nine months, I think it was 46 patients reoccurred with SIBO. So you really need to be monitoring the benefit of, of that kind of diet, I think, a little bit longer than just two weeks. This is um, just another cautionary tale of online information. If you can see on the left-hand side, very at the last paragraph, um, this particular provider, and I don't know who she is, I just wanted to grab some information online to kind of let you know what's out there. And it really um, concerns me. Um, this particular uh, website, this pr practitioner is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. And that functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner sounds pretty real, right? Well, no college education is required. Um, you get the certification in six months. Um, and they're, they're saying that this program, had, there's no equivalent to the superior training and skills of a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. <laughs> so just be careful out there. It's very, very worrisome. The, uh, the other thing on this website was that they suggest diets are reduced in starches, resistant starch, soluble fiber, sugar, which is natural in many fruits and dairy, prebiotics, beans, vegetables. I'm not sure quite what's left to eat. However, they further in the in this third paragraph say, for those that are sensitive to oxalates, histamines, amines, salicylates, sulfur, other food components, or have food sensitivities, we will layer this over the top. This is concerning, and you wonder why patients with SIBO and IBS have disordered eating or increased risk of food fear. It's this type of information that's online, and it, it is really very concerning. Stay away from the internet. There's lots of myths to bust tonight, and I'm going to go through these very quickly because of time. 
is, you know, there is strong scientific evidence for specific diet therapy and SIBO. Well, I hope you can now say with certainty, this is false. There is some clinical observations. I've certainly seen it in my own life. And with many uh, hundreds and thousands of patients that have worked with SIBO, that reducing small chain fermentable carbohydrates can help with the symptom. Does it cure SIBO? No. Can it be used alone to treat SIBO? No. But can it help some of those residual GI symptoms that mimic IBS? It seems to, but we need a randomized control trial to really evaluate this. And again, the elemental diet can eradicate SIBO in a short term. Um, it appears in, in short term, but again, it's one study. So this is, this isn't really evidenced, strong evidence base. Low stomach acid is a risk factor for SIBO. Dr. Che mentioned that, but supplementing betaine HCL or apple cider vinegar regular because you have SIBO to help with SIBO eradication, there is no data on that. So be, be wary of providers that suggest that. If SIBO occurs due to dysbiosis or an unhealthy balance of microbes in the small bowel, then probiotic supplements will provide equilibrium and balance to the small bowel microbiome. False, maybe true. Data shows mixed results with probiotics. So we'll talk about that in the next slide. So just to give you a little miniature snapshot of probiotics and SIBO, there was a meta-analysis looking at probiotics and SIBO, and this overall arching evaluation of a number of different studies showed that there was some effect in reducing the bacterial burden in SIBO. However, in contrast, Satish Rao, who has done a number of um, you know, papers on SIBO, works with SIBO patients, is really well versed in this, had a study looking at probiotics, and it showed that in patients with SIBO, it provoked brain fogginess, gas, bloating. And when they took the patients off the probiotics and treated with antibiotics, all their brain fogginess and GI symptoms resolved. Another study in pro of probiotics looked at uh, lactobacillus casei probiotic along with rifaximin, and they found that it had offered greater improvement in GI symptoms with this dual therapy compared to antibiotics alone. Is this strong data to recommend pro or for probiotic? Not yet. Um, I err on the side of caution and tend to not do probiotics or not encourage probiotics in the, in, in the face of SIBO, but it's hard to know which way I think each patient's a little bit different and some may benefit and others, um, may not. So we're looking about, we're assessing for nutrition interventions. What are we looking for? What is the goal of the GI dietitian? Really to help manage the GI symptoms that are associated with SIBO, especially some patients will be treated with antibiotics and, and may still have some residual symptoms that we wanna manage. We also want to help the patient maintain a positive relationship with food and an overly restrictive diet is concerning to me um, to really help foster that, that positive relationship. We want to be at least, as least restrictive as possible to allow, allow for a variety of foods. We know that a variety of plant fruit foods tend to increase the diversity of the gut microbiome, at least in one study that everyone talks about. 
Um, but a variety of foods is the spice of life. So I'm, I'm all for variety as a dietitian. And then of course we want to replenish any nutri nutrient deficiencies that may be present. And Dr. Che mentioned in some cases, there'll actually be uh, villus atrophy or, or blunting of these villi that help our body absorb nutrients. And, um, and this is just the aftermath of certain bacterias that are overgrown that, that, that are probably have certain types of metabolites that are affecting this inflammatory process. Um, so in some patients, um, we want to check some nutritional labs, especially if patients have severe symptoms. Um, Fat-soluble vitamins are higher on my list if the patient describes um, odorous stools or difficult to flush stools like, like uh, mashed potatoes, um, because this can, can sort of provide some insights to fat malabsorption. So some vitamin levels that might be checked is serum vitamin A, vitamin D, serum vitamin E. Typically vitamin K is pretty steady because that's one vitamin that the microbes do produce. B12 may be checked, and this can be checked with a, a, a test called methylmalonic acid or even a serum B12. B12 can be high or low in SIBO. Some microbes will make B12, and so some people have very high levels, and then others, um, the microbes consume B vitamins and it's low. Folate tends to be elevated in some patients. Again, this is depends on those microbes, who's there and what are they doing? And some microbes in um, SIBO will produce folate and it'll be elevated. I like checking a serum folate or, or requesting an RBC folate because an elevated folate may be just another signature that maybe this is, this is SIBO and it's not IBS, but, but maybe more of a case for SIBO. And then ferritin for iron, some people will have low iron status, particularly those that tend to have that villus blunting or, um, you know, have, have more severe inflammatory processes um, from, from the bacterial overgrowth. So um, I'm going to quickly go through this since we're running a little bit late. Um, as I mentioned, the specific carbo diet, specific carbohydrate diet and low FODMAP diet combo is uh, pretty restrictive. It can result in a low fiber, high fat, and high protein diet. The concern with protein is that protein can also be fermented by our gut microbes. It doesn't cause that bloating and gas that, that patients complain about as much, um, but it can, it can increase... Um, to lead to the increased production of certain toxic metabolites like ammonia, phenols, amines, indoles, and TMAO, which is um, trimethylene and oxide, which is associated with cardiovascular disease risk and diabetes. Um, and then of course, high protein can lead to hydrogen sulfide gas, which is that odorous, uh, foul, rotten egg smelling um, farts. Um, so I'm not going to go through that because we talked about that. Um, is there a pro to the specific carbohydrate and low FODMAP diet combo? I would say no. The only little potential benefit is that it's a very whole foods approach because all refined carbohydrates are removed from this diet. Um, so it kind of makes patients eat more whole foods, but you can do whole foods diet approach with any diet that you eat. So I wouldn't say it's really a pro. Um, it's extremely restrictive. It also uses terms like illegal and legal to describe food, which to me is very fear inducing. It's difficult to eat socially, and we don't know the long-term impact of a low carbohydrate diet on the colonic microbiome. 
The Cedar sinai low fermentation diet is a diet um, that really just reduces simple carbo, like fibrous carbohydrates, whole grains, but simple carbohydrates such as white bread would be allowed, white pasta. Um, one thing that's I like about this is that it encourages um, eating discrete meals versus grazing. There may be some benefit to that because as Dr. Che mentioned, the migrating motor complex was in one of his slides. This is a cyclic a uh, reoccurring pattern um, that has a number of different phases. And the phase three of the migrating motor complex is a housekeeper wave, kind of cleans out the intestine. Think of it as a big swoosh of everything out. And that um, gets interrupted when we're eating. So if you're grazing all day, you're not really going to have one of those migrating motor complexes, or you're going to have a reduction. And that may, you know, potentially increase your risk of SIBO, or at least prevent some of those bacteria and food from getting removed from the back from from the intestine. Um, I'm not going to review this potential uh, pros beyond that. Um, it does encourage better, more normal eating patterns, go out, be normal as you can. Um, but there are some inconsistencies with this diet and they suggest, they say that butter contains lactose, that a gluten-free diet is a low carbohydrate diet. And these are actually false, um, statements. They also encourage onion and garlic, garlic, which are common triggers in the SIBO population. So although it does reduce some fermentable carbohydrates may be beneficial to some people, it might not be enough for others. Let's talk a little bit about the low FODMAP diet. So this has strong evidence for, for um, um, IBS. Um, 50 to 70% of IBS patients will have a clinically meaningful response to the low FODMAP diet. It does remove that osmotic load of extra water in the gut and reduces gas production. Think of FODMAPs as fast food for our gut bacteria. So these small carbohydrates can be fermented even in the small bowel, some of them. So reducing the availability of this fast food for, for microbes may be helpful for SIBO. It is moderately restrictive. It does require GI dietitian expertise to um, educate, um, but it does allow all of the food groups. There have been some studies looking at microbial gas production and GI symptoms, and a high FODMAP diet is associated with more gas production, which the gas is coming from our microbes, we're feeding them. Um, so there is some evidence of that connection with SIBO and FODMAPs, or at least microbial gas production. Some cons, it can be misused in patients. Patients feel better. They're hesitant to reintroduce subgroups and they remain on the elimination phase too long. We don't recommend that. It's not always implemented with the help of a GI dietitian and a one-page guide just isn't suitable to fully implement the diet. And then it also reduces some prebiotic um, fibers, galactooligosaccharides and fructans. Um, so there may be some detrimental effects um, you know, from that vantage point. Almost done, guys, promise. Um, so there are various online sources, inc including RDs, unfortunately, that list a SIBO protocol, okay? There is no SIBO protocol, all right? So when you hear those terms, be, be wary. Um, there's also problems exist when we're trying multiple supplements. Dr. Che mentioned, you know, these patients come in. I've had patients with full laundry baskets full of, full of supplements, 
and they're trying to change their diet and they're taking all their supplements and we can't can't control what's working or what's hindering when there's so many things muddying the waters. The other thing is supplements are not regulated. Um, so if someone is offering or suggesting that you purchase their supplement, one, ask what the research is related to that supplement into the condition that you have. Where's the where's the data? Show me the data. Has this been studied? And secondly, um, you know, it, that it's a high quality product. Has it been third party tested? Some supplements that may help expand diet, and I'll go through this quickly, lactase supplements, these you can get over the counter. They can aid lactase, lactose digestion. Just be careful of ingredients because some fast act actually have FODMAPs like mannitol. So picking the right ones. Alpha-galactosidase is a supplement such as Beano or Bean Assist that you can get over the counter to help with some of the gas production from, from beans and other um, galacto-oligosaccharide foods, GOS foods, galacto-oligosaccharides, say that 10 times fast. Um, but be careful again, Beano has ma uh, mannitol in it, which is a FODMAP. So choosing supplements also that don't have gluten or mannitol or, or other things that you may need to eliminate due to other dietary considerations. So in summary, um, diet is not one size fits all for SIBO. Less is not more when it comes to good nutrition, developing a positive relationship with food and for gut health. Undernutrition can actually impact your gut motility, lead to constipation, decrease GI function, and that's never going to be the goal. A balanced diet with a variety of plants has shown in numerous studies to improve overall um, health and lower chronic health risks. Too much protein and too much fat do not appear to be favorable for the gut microbiome, so be careful of diets that, that suggest that you have primarily protein and fat. Fermentable carbs in excess appear to be common symptom driver in IBS and in SIBO. Um, these symptoms mimic each other. Um, most diet approaches for SIBO that are out there modify carbs, but many of them do so in a very, what I would say, dangerous manner. Work with a GI expert dietitian. Be careful of the pseudoscience. It's, it's rampant out there. And as Dr. Chase said, and I hope it, it's coming soon because patients deserve this, we need to understand diet. We need to, need to understand medications and just overall SIBO much better so we can help patients feel their best. And with that, I'll end, and I'm sorry. Oh, don't talking. be sorry. It was amazing. So I just need to go back one. There we go. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Che and Kate for presenting incredibly comprehensive and complex uh, conditions related to SIBO. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot. I just wanna take a moment to introduce uh, Rachel Manthe and Taylor Hanna, both registered dietitians from Diet Versus Disease to just speak and briefly before we get to our questions. So I'm going to stop sharing and you can actually see everybody. So here's our panel. So Rachel and um, Taylor, you can unmute yourself and please introduce diverse disease. Hello, and thank you. Um, I'm Taylor, again, one of the dietitians on the Diet Versus Disease team. 
a little bit about diet versus disease. We are a global gut health dietitian and mindset um, and hypnotherapy team. So we have dietitians across Canada, the US and Australia. We do have a few in UK and Europe as well. And we do have mindset coaches and gut-directed hypnotherapy because we do take a holistic approach in the sense of attacking a lot of the different variables that can impact our gut, our gut-brain access, uh, food, nutrition. And one of the things we really pride ourselves in is individualizing our programs and treatment approaches to take the whole person into consideration. And as Kate mentioned, we want to look at the whole picture in terms of nutrition, what's going on with supplements. And we also pride ourselves in fast and accessible care. We don't want people waiting and waiting and waiting uh, to see their dietitian. And so we try to make sure we're as accessible and quick as possible. And most people are able to get in within a week of referral uh, with one of the dietitians for regular contact. And Rachel, I'll pass it over to you to introduce and add anything else you would like to. Yeah, I'm Rachel. Um, as Taylor mentioned, I am also a registered dietitian. Um, and just a couple other things that I wanted to add in addition to that is that from the individual standpoint, I think what's really lacking in your typical like medical system, if you're going to a hospital to see a dietitian many times, like when I was in a hospital, I would see a patient for maybe 30 minutes. If I was lucky that included the intake. So learning about the patient, learning about their symptoms and the education components of it. So trying to educate them on like a dietary component. So, oh, I'm going to teach you the entire low FODMAP diet in five minutes, which is just not realistic. So something that um, I really love about working with diet versus disease is being able to really spend the time with our patients and our clients. Um, so we typically meet with our clients at least once, maybe every other week, maybe once a week. Um, they have direct access to email us, message us on a daily basis. Because as Kate and Dr. Che said, SIBO is very complicated. It's very complex. What works for one patient that has the exact same symptoms, maybe the exact same diagnosis, isn't it? necessarily going to work for the next person. So we do find it's kind of a trial and error process. Um, and we get that ability to really look at what are you currently eating for an entire two weeks before we even decide what route are we going to take? So let's look at your diet over the last two weeks. Let's look at those symptoms associated with what you're eating and start to make those correlations and those connections between mm, what are you sensitive to? Are we noticing a pattern between FODMAP foods? Are we noticing a pattern between high starchy foods or histamines or that, um, instead of just automatically being like, okay, every single person's going on a low FODMAP diet or you know whatever it might be. Um, but I think that personalization piece is just extremely important. Well, thanks very much for explaining diet versus disease and, and your involvement. Let's, let's get to questions if... Um... Our faculty can hang on for a few more minutes. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll do, we, we received some questions prior to the webinar tonight. So I'll start with Dr. Che. Uh, this patient, their entire right side of their colon was removed, including the, the door of my small intestine that gives access to the large intestine. They say I need not worry about SIBO. Is that correct? No, it's not correct. I didn't get that. Could you try again? <laughs> 
Where my Siri turned on. <laughs> yeah, GPT. Uh, uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see what they say if, if ChatGPT agrees with this reasoning. But, um, <laughs> you know, bottom line is no, that's not correct. Uh, because as I mentioned a moment ago, the um, colon is teeming with bacteria. And when you remove the right side of the colon and the ileocecal valve, you now have relatively free exchange of material from the colon into the distal small bowel. So uh, those patients almost always have to Okay, thank you. Uh, Kate, this is for you. How do you approach this patient? Uh, they have a fear of going out anywhere because of IBSD. They fear the hop diarrhea in their pants. And they're also concerned about the frequency of bowel movements every day. They don't believe this has anything to do with food. Hmm. Well, if that's the case, I might start with a GI psychologist that can really walk them through some of the fears that they're having because they're certainly limiting their life, right? So, um, you know, maybe start with something that um, they're ready for, and 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 I would I would hope if they're not into changing their diet and diet may or may not work. Um, that I would approach just their lifestyle because clearly they're 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 letting IBS or SIBO win, right? Because they're restricting, they're not going out for fear of of having an accident, right? So we might start with that. Um, we can't force people. We can lead them to water, but we can't force them to change or be ready to change their diet. So true. Okay, this question is for Rachel or Taylor. With so much gut variability in people with SIBO or IBS, how do you know if diet might make a difference in their symptoms? Either one of you want to take that. Oh, wonderful. Um, so in terms of nutrition, I might be a little biased, but I do feel that... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not monitoring, but being aware of our nutrition and different nutrition factors can have a benefit. Again, in context with keeping a good food relationship, of course. So in terms of symptoms, one of the tools that we do like to use for some of our clients might be food tracking. So recording our symptoms and our food and what we're eating and looking for correlations. So we're not over-restricting, looking at uh, fluctuations in fiber, fats, other potential triggers that we might see as well. And so that those tools of tracking and symptom tracking can be valuable. Again, we don't want to necessarily hyper-focus on what we're eating or our symptoms either, but the awareness can be helpful. Or perhaps if tracking is not for you, we will use other tools as well um, to see if there's or tweaks within our our nutrition, we often try to focus on what we can add in or incorporate. So for example, fiber and different types of fibers, as opposed to necessarily just what we would take away, um, which I find a lot of people tend to focus on as well, but what can we add in to help support our gut and digestive tract? Um, and then in terms of improving symptoms, I would say, although the percentage might vary, I do see most of our clients would see quite uh, quite a bit of value in at least some nutrition tweaks, fiber-wise, fluid-wise, uh, trigger-wise, et cetera, in combination perhaps with um, gut-directed uh, psychologists as well or other tools, medications, et cetera. Um, but that's my, my perspective. Rachel or Kate, do you guys want to add anything? No? Okay. Great. Let me go on. I'm mindful of the time. So thank you for everybody who's hanging in there. 
A uh, question uh, to Dr. Che, and it's related to the antibiotics that you described in your presentation. So this person is seeing a GI doctor and they've done the breath test and it was felt it was possibly SIBO or IBS. And they're on a regiment of neomycin, zyfaxin, and nortriptyline various times during the day. Is this a usual regimen? And and it's been suggested they might have to increase their dosage strength in order to make a proper diagnosis. Yeah, so, uh, you know, with this much information, it's really hard to give advice. This is what I would say. Is nortriptyline a standard therapy for IBS? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, nortriptyline is a tricyclic um, neuromodulator that has effects on visceral sensation and also has anticholinergic and antihistaminic effects, which could be, which could all be beneficial either individually or as a group in patients with, with IBS. So, and, and the last part of your question probably has to do with the fact that nortriptyline oftentimes requires dose titration. So we always start low and then we slowly increase. Um, for the most part, if you're treating IBS, not depression, but if you're treating IBS, if once you get to a dose of around 75 to 100 milligrams, if you have not responded to nortriptyline, you're likely not to respond from the standpoint of your IBS symptoms. Um, as far as rifaximin and neomycin, that's the current um, largely accepted regimen for methanogen, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Um, that would not be a regimen used for SIBO. Um, so if the person has predominantly hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide, um, that would not be the regimen that we would typically use for that. But on the other hand, if they had elevated methane levels, um, that would be a regimen that would be used for a short time. Now remember, this is a really thing, an important thing that I'm going to say right now. And that is that the main side effect of neomycin is autotoxicity. Okay, it's possible deafness. Autotoxicity is dose related, dose and duration related. The higher the dose, the longer you take it, the more likely you are to get problems. So we do not dose, um, we do not do- dose neomycin for extended periods of time. Okay. Uh, Kate, this is a question that you've been asked numerous times, and I think it's really good to even to speak about it every time we do a webinar, and it's related to the timeline for the low FODMAP diet and reintroduction. Can you give a, I know you can spend an hour talking about the reintroduction, and and also Dr. Che can talk about this too, but I mean, Kate, go ahead and and really talk about the three phases of, of the low FODMAP diet. Sure. So it's a three-phase intervention. The first phase is the elimination phase. That's where we restrict the very high FODMAP foods. And that's usually done anywhere from two to six weeks. It really depends on the patient. I've had patients respond within two weeks, and then we start reintroducing. They feel great. Some patients take a while to assimilate it into their lifestyle, and they take a little while to kind of get a groove, and then it takes a little bit longer. Um, But after six weeks, we determine, is it working? Do you feel awesome? Do you feel a little bit better? You know, do you not feel any different? If they're not feeling any different and they're following the diet, then it's a plan B. The diet didn't work for them. We move on. Um, For those that have partial response or full response, we start the reintroduction phase. And that's when various 
uh, FODMAP subtypes are added back into their diet. So we're testing their tolerance to lactose. We're testing their tolerance to fructans, for example. And we'll do that with specific foods that only have that FODMAP in them. Um, that we kind of do it over three phases. So day one, they would have lactose, half a cup, then they might increment to one cup. Then the next day they would have one and a half cups, something like that, depending on, you know, the dietitian can kind of do a little art and science there. That phase can take eight to 10 weeks. Some patients take a few days, you know, weeks off, then we restart up again. So play around with that. But anyway, about six to eight weeks, I mean, eight to 10 weeks, six to eight, 10, something like that depends. And then the, the uh, last phase is the personalization phase. And that's when we look at what they were able to tolerate. And we start slowly adding that back to their regular dietary pattern. Um, we don't typically do that during the reintroduction. We just test the tolerance. We pull all the food out and do all the tests on a low FODMAP elimination diet. And then the personalization phase is when we're reintroducing. So that wasn't really an elevator pitch. I did it a little elongated. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, something like that. No, I think it's really good to, to speak about that because I speak to so many patients and they feel that it's a, it's a lifetime diet. Uh, and they eliminate foods and they never go back to them. So I think it's really important to just to oh, speak. Totally. Okay, so one last question. Uh, it's going to be for Dr. Che. So this person is worried about a re reoccurrence of SIBO after having functional dyspe dyspepsia. They were taking PPIs. Um, they want to know if that could contribute to a recurrence. Um, and if they do have a recurrence, do they have to go back to antibiotics in order to treat the SIBO? Okay, so... Um, this question about recurrence is a very, very hot topic, um, and it's one for which we have very little data. So there are a bunch of things that people throw around um, with almost no evidence to support it, but it's sort of using intuitive reasoning. So um, first thing is that people talk about the low FODMAP diet. So the idea of putting patients on a carbohydrate-restricted diet uh, and sort of preventing or not providing the substrate that would accelerate the growth or recurrence of SIBO um, is intuitively attractive, but completely unfair. Mm -hmm. uh, another strategy that people talk about a lot is um, using prokinetic agents, so drugs that induce motility in the small intestine to help prevent SIBO from coming back. So drugs like glucalipride or motegrity Drugs like erythromycin, um, you know, people have played around with as possible um, mechanisms or medications to reduce the likelihood of SIBO recurrence. Um, uh, those are the, the the two primary ones. People have talked about probiotics, like Kate Kate showed. Um, I'm very skeptical about probiotics. I must say, in this setting, I, I, I I'm not convinced at all that. That we have any idea what we're doing. And in the future, it's possible as we learn more about this that robotics might become a very attractive you know, strategy. But I don't think randomly throwing, you know, millions of coliforms and of bacteria into a circumstance where we're trying to get fewer bacteria uh, make, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and you know, the stuff by Satish Rao um, showing that excessive probiotics can actually induce uh, SIBO with brain fog, et cetera, et cetera. And also data to show that um, 
the ingestion of certain probiotics causes false positive breath test results. Uh, tells me that you might be doing creating more confusion than than solving problems by using probiotics in that setting. So um, I'd be hesitant to do that. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. We do have a lot more questions. We're gonna try and get those answered offline. But I want to thank uh, the panel of experts uh, and uh, diet versus disease for helping us tonight and sponsoring tonight. Uh, reminder that we will make this recording available at a later date. There's also going to be a podcast that drops on the last day of the month, and you can uh, listen to our podcast, which is a little more in, in detail, in-depth rather, uh, discussion about the topic tonight, and that drops the last um, last week, last Tuesday of the month. Um, so anyways, thank you again for everybody who's attending tonight, and uh, we hope to see you uh, for Kate's uh, Chef Cook-Off. Uh, on August the 30th. So good night, everyone, and thanks again. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all-new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at TuesdayNightIBS. And find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month.